Reaching product market fit is the first major hurdle you have to overcome if you want to start a successful business. The lean startup methodology is the most common approach people take to get there, but it's fundamentally flawed. And today I'm going to teach you a better approach based on Brian Balfour and Sachin Panda's Reforge program, which is this growth strategy and product program run by a bunch of VCs, entrepreneurs, and executives from various unicorn tech companies like Uber, Lyft, Instacart, etc. So we're going to learn to reach product market fit in a deliberate way that minimizes risk as opposed to the lean startup methodology, which is more like you have an initial insight and you try to release an MVP related to that as fast as possible, gain market feedback, and then iterate. The problem with that is you don't know if you're optimizing towards a local maximum as opposed to unlocking the full potential of your business. Also, most people don't even get to the point where they release their MVP because it can take a lot of work to create a functioning prototype that tests their core product value. But taking a more deliberate approach gives you this sense of progress where you're like, okay, I've validated this piece of the business. I've validated the growth strategy. I've validated that there's a meaningful problem. I've validated that you know our solution is salient and makes sense and that we are able to build it. Um, as you validate each piece, you have this like sense of like incremental progress and you also have like this reduction of the fog of war, which can be really motivating as you strive to build your MVP and also just like lets you get started on a better path um, to kind of optimize the odds of you really building something great. So what we're going to do is this is going to be a four four part series. So I'm going to do one part each week for four weeks. And this week we're gonna talk about how to come up with good hypotheses to describe how the different aspects of your business will work together. And by doing this, we're gonna be able to tell whether you have a good initial insight to build a business on, whether you have a good starting point for the various aspects of your business, and what the riskiest parts of your business are, which will then help you guide your validation efforts and give you more bang for your buck. And next week, we're going to talk about validation techniques. So I'm going to say that if you get this right, you're going to have just an immense head start on the road to creating a valuable company. This is like the first major gate you have to pass through. Uh, and I'm really excited to talk about this because whether you want to start a company, but you haven't started one, or whether you, you have started a company, you have a product out there, but it's not flying off the shelves yet. Or even if you're like within a bigger company and you want to create a new product, this is going to be very valuable content. Product market fit is the point at which the problem you have shifts from acquiring customers to dealing with the sheer volume of customer demand you have. Like the product is flying off the shelves faster than you can keep up with it. So a lot of companies go through their entire life cycle never hitting product market fit. I get acquired before they hit product market fit. So just because you have a product and have some customers doesn't mean you're there yet. And this could still be useful for you. The first step in, in starting a business or creating a new product is having an initial insight that you can build around. And you got to think about like, what are the signals of a good initial insight? One is that it's earned, 
So it's justified by real experiences, personal experiences, professional experiences that you've had. It's an emergent behavior on an existing product you're working on, or you have just complete immersion in a problem space. Like let's say you've been getting a PhD in an area, or you've just been reading and deeply engaged with the space for a long time. This is really important because the worst businesses I've seen have been built off of just like top-down global insights that someone got from like a trade publication um, and as a result nobody actually like experiences the problem whereas like the company I currently like work for uh, I'm uh, I'm the like first product designer on our team we're a tiny series a company and the founders were roboticists computer scientists respectively, and they personally experienced this problem of having to constantly redesign similar variations on complex circuit boards repeatedly, having to throw away large numbers of circuit boards due to errors, and then based on that personal insight that was earned through years of work, uh, they triangulated that with these larger trends. Like, oh, interesting, like 60% of the circuit boards that went into creating the iPhone had to be discarded because of preventable errors. Now, oh, interesting, there's a huge like shortage of labor in this industry, and it seems like having better tools that enable automation and design reuse would allow you to let your labor go further and do more with it. Um, so you'll notice this isn't like they read TechCrunch and read about NFTs, and then they were like, you know what would be great? Like this thing, and it's not based on their, it's not based on a meaningful, deep experience or observation. The other part of this is it should be ideally a unique insight. So I found this really interesting. Um, I found both of these helpful, but I found this really interesting, particularly, is the sign of an underappreciated truth or a unique insight is mixed consensus. So if you have a business idea and you're telling people about it and everyone is just you're like, yeah, that's a, that sounds great. It's actually a sign of an idea that's perhaps been tried and true and just already had the value squeezed out of it or an idea that a lot of other people are pursuing. If you have mixed feedback, what that means is it's a non-consensus idea that is meaningfully unique, right? Um, so an example of this would be like the old, you know, uh, automobile thing right where it's like hey if you ask people whether they wanted automobiles they'd say i just want a faster horse or something along those lines or really any new technology has this quality where a lot of people are resistant to it you have the early adopters who see the potential of it then you have the early majority who kind of come over then you have the late majority and then you have the stragglers after that so if everyone is just like yeah this is great then you're selling sliced bread basically um and the final aspect is this should be grounded in at least one dimension of your overall like set of hypotheses that go into developing your business. And, you know, what are those hypotheses? Well, you're going to have to hypothesize around the problem you're solving, the target audience you're solving it for, the value proposition that you think is going to resonate with them, what competitive advantage you have over other players in the space and in adjacent spaces 
how the business is going to grow and what your business model is going to be and and see that all of these have reasonable alignment and and ground your your business idea in like one of these things so for the problem to solve the key thing here is not to get bogged down in solutions too quickly because when you think about solutions you think about what's easily at hand for you uh, and what's what's familiar to you when you think about the customer problem you tend to dig deeper for solutions that might be harder to build might not be the first thing you think of but better target the actual problem the customer is trying to solve and the way you can kind of snap yourself out of this solution thinking and figure out the real problem is by asking these questions like what is the customer actually trying to achieve so in the case of the company i work for jitx like the customer is trying to design complex schematics waste less time waste less boards uh, have fewer preventable errors and fundamentally that's their goal their goal isn't to do parametric design their goal isn't to use code to design circuit boards which is what our product allows you to do their goal is to move fast and not break things uh, and why do they want that outcome well they want that outcome to save money save effort increase their odds of product success spend more time doing creative work get professional recognition uh, have more financial success all of those things and why can't they do this today? Well, the reason they can't do this today in the case of JITX is um, the best way to put it is like there's this Bell Labs talk called schematics, the heroine of electrical engineering, you know, or something along those lines. It might be the heroine of PCB design. But essentially, like, as schematics get more and more complicated, they take more and more effort to create. They get more and more error-ridden and they're harder to read and interpret. So schematics are, are not the answer uh, to, to, to the problem of designing extremely complex, rigorous custom electronics. So you can go through this exercise with your, your own product. I mean, for us, like, what about the podcast, right? Like the podcast is a product. What are you guys trying to achieve? Well, our current hypothesis is you're trying to create things, build things, um, you know, found companies, run your own projects, make things happen in like a complicated and dynamic world. And what are the two most important aspects of that? Leadership and decision science, right? Um, I would say that something that is degrading the potential that we have to do these things today is making suboptimal decisions or lacking confidence in our decisions or not being able to work effectively through other people, not being able to best leverage the people around you and their talents. Um, so that's why we kind of focus on the things we focused on. And as we go forward, we're going to try to validate that this makes sense and improve it from there. So target audience. So a really common mistake is to target a massive audience for your MVP. The reason why this is a mistake is that it's really hard to satisfy everybody with the limited resources you have at first. And also I would add to this, like 
people are drawn towards things that cater to them specifically. If you have a product that caters to everybody, you're not going to have the marketing cut through. You're not going to know who you're talking to. You're not going to be able to build that relationship with those initial customers who are going to work with you to develop the product, evangelize the product, really care about it, and be in dialogue with you in the way that you need to help you gather the data you need. And I've seen this mistake as well where basically like a startup will conflate talking to investors with talking to customers. The investors want to know what is this massive market you're going after. The customers want to know what you're going to do for them specifically as an individual. The customers care about testimonials from their peers. The customers care about how you position the product to cater to their specific problems in their specific context. So one way to think about like a, a segment a meaningful segment of customers to target is that a segment is a unit of conversation, right? So small business owners, is that a segment? I mean, sort of, um, but the question you got to ask yourself is, is the small machine parts distributor in Galena, Illinois, talking to the small startup in San Francisco? And the answer is no. Is the medtech startup in, in Boston talking to the software startup in San Francisco, the answer is probably no. I mean, it's possible that they are, but um, it's not the strongest segment of conversation or the clearest segment of conversation. It's, it's not the one where if you sell a product to person A, tomorrow they're going to grab a coffee with or email or Slack or text person B and tell, tell them about it, right? In that sense, like you're talking about people who are closely adjacent in domain, on the business side, in demographics, in geo geographic location, uh, or in online location, right? Like maybe they're on uh, uh, the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu subreddit, right? But the point is they need to have a place where they gather and interface and they need to be like meaningfully engaged in conversation, which is usually a pretty small group of people. And another way to think about this is like, if you're trying to light a log on fire, you can get a match and just wave it back and forth along the log and it's like never going to light or you can hold it in one spot and then it'll light. At first the fire will be small, it'll spread to adjacent areas and then the whole thing will be on fire. So start small and then expand to adjacent markets and know what those adjacent markets will be. And, and also think about like on the path to your larger market, is your initial choice of beachhead market precluding future markets that you might um, want to go after? So let's say you're, you're a company and you're selling tiny robots. If you start off in the children's toy market, it's going to be hard to then expand into military robotics. It's possible, but you, you may not have the peer testimonials or meet the technical specs or requirements required to let you do that. Whereas if you start in aerospace, it might be easier to transition into defense applications. Um, and if you start in toys, it might be easier to go into another aspect of consumer electronics, perhaps like, you know, household robotics. So, and even then that might be a little tough of a sell, but it, it's possible. Um, it's more possible than the military, you know, like predator drone that's then repurposed as like a children's toy, you know? 
Um, though there are children who would think that's really cool, but there are fewer parents who, who would, perhaps. So go ahead and get these like audience attributes together to define your your potential segments. Pick like two to three, you know, demographic, psychographic, um, maybe their work position, geographic can be a useful one, especially when now that COVID's over, you can go to conferences and stuff. Group the attributes into what you believe will be customer segments and then split them into now versus future segments where the segments you're going to ta tackle now and maybe even segment you're going to tackle now has the most acute problem to solve, the strongest resonance with the value prop, strongest competitive advantage, the greatest ease of reach for you, the strongest willingness to pay, um, and then put the rest of these segments into a bucket for future segments. So as far as the value prop, don't confuse features for benefits. Again, this goes back to like the solution thinking versus problem thinking. Customers don't speak the language of features. They speak the language of benefits. They want to know what you're going to do for them. Um, and not just like, you know, what you're creating unrelated to like what they're actually like trying to do with it. So an example of this would be like, you know, emphasizing, uh, in, in the JEDX case, emphasizing like the, the speed and accuracy of designing circuit boards with JEDX as opposed to, you know, using parametric design and code to design circuit boards, which is more like a set of features, a cool set of features, but a set of features nevertheless. And for our podcast, it might be something like, you know, get better outcomes and like have more success with your startup, with the stuff you're building, with the projects you're working on using the knowledge from this podcast, as opposed to learn about decision science and leadership, you know, which is a means to an end, the end being contributing more, doing more, um, getting more out of the projects you're working on. And, um, Honestly, in the case of decision science, like living a better life too. Um, next, well, not next week, maybe next week. I have to decide like how I'm going to parse out these episodes, but there's an episode coming up uh, by, based on this book, Maxims for Thinking Analytically by a Harvard professor called Richard Zeckhauser, who is like a decision science theorist. And like, he's been in the field for a long time and worked on a lot of different stuff. And that book has already like influenced so many major decisions I've made, like whether to buy a gun, like how much to spend on uh, security for my home, like what medical treatment to get for our dog, like, you know, um, should I do judo and jujitsu or just jujitsu? Like it's, it's honestly affected like so many different things um, that I've decided to do already, um, let alone stuff at work and or stuff with this project. So a good way to test your value prop for your initial like product market fit narrative, which is what I would call this set of questions you're answering and what, what Sachin Panda and Brian Balfour call it in Reforge is design a homepage for your product and have a tagline that's six to eight words communicating your overall value promise, as well as like three to five sub benefits, communicating how the product solves 
key customer challenges. By doing this, it really forces you to crystallize like what you're doing for people. Um, and it also gives you an asset that you can then test. So if you set up like, um, you know, pre-registrations or like a wait list through your website and then you do like Facebook ads, you can see just are people resonating with this at all. Even if Facebook ads aren't your growth strategy long-term because it doesn't make sense for every product uh, or even most products, it could still help you to just get a sense of like, is this resonating? Do people get this? On the competitive advantage front, think both long-term and short-term. If you don't think long-term people are going to copy you and you're going to have like a complete red water market where all the value is just like frittered away by competition. For long-term advantage, you want to think about scale. Do you have per unit costs declining as volume increases? Are you able to get more efficient as you get larger? So for example, if you're a shoe manufacturer, buying the inputs for a million shoes is a lot cheaper per unit than buying the inputs for 10 shoes. Um, do you have network effects? Do customers realize more value as usage increases? Right, so for, um, for let's say an app like Facebook, that's one of the quintessential cases, right, is as more of your friends are on Facebook, it's more useful to you. There's more conversation going on there that's relevant to you. And this is true for, you know, so many major businesses we see out there today, like uh, Amazon has more people on, on the marketplace side of things, like put products online, there are more options for customers. As there are more customers, it's more useful to sellers. YouTube, your likelihood of finding a video that resonates with you goes up as more people use the platform and release more videos. So as a result of this, if I wanted to start, you know, YouTube 2.0, I have a massive moat to overcome, namely a new customer who comes to YouTube 2.0 is highly un unlikely to find a video that resonates with them for a long, long time. So it's really tough to catch up when you have these like network effects and scale effects. And one way you can do this is by creating a niche business where you're not trying to cater to every type of video you have a very specific set of videos so for example let me see if I, I remember the name of this i don't remember the name of this this product but there's a there's a anime streaming service right if you're trying to beat you know youtube netflix other forms of entertainment that are more general it's going to be really tough but if you build a streaming service specifically for anime you um you're able to get cut through right away because you don't need to build density in every single area of interest. So another thing is, and I guess you can, you can call that an, an aspect of counter positioning, which is another way to have long-term competitive advantage, which is you implement a business model that does not sync with your competitors existing business model. So Netflix has a range of stuff for a range of people. The anime streaming service only caters to anime. Netflix cannot now shift and focus on anime as that would completely jeopardize their existing business. They could build density in that area and have catered advertising, but it'll be really tough for them to like unseat this service that understands and caters to this specific group of people. 
So another thing too is switching costs. If I were to switch from Apple to Android, the pain of doing that to get my iCloud migrated and like change just like, you know, a half dozen products that I own is just so substantial that I'm unlikely to do so. Uh, another example of this is like, let's say you're working in, in Figma and there's a new design tool that comes out and stuff imports imperfectly from Figma to the new tool. As a result, like you have so much sunk cost in the tool that switching just causes you to waste like so much money and time. Um, you see this on the technical side too, where, you know, like even companies that were started like 10, 15 years ago, their tech stacks are super old in some cases and outdated because the technology has moved on and, and it's too costly to switch, you know? So there are other levers for long-term competitive advantage too, branding, cornering a resource, uh, things like that, but they're less relevant for the projects you're likely to be working on. Uh, and if you're curious about this, there's a guy who focuses on it, but I don't remember his name. So next episode, I will share that. So as far as like winning in the short term, like how, how do you do that? Well, the first thing is like, you got to understand the competitive landscape. So figure out like who are the direct and indirect competitors that you have, as well as competitors in adjacent markets that could shift into yours, right? So let's say that you identify, after that you identify which segments your current competitors serve and figure out like who they're serving well and who they aren't serving well. So Netflix, maybe they're not catering effectively to anime fans, which opens up this opportunity for a streaming service dedicated to anime. ESPN is not catering effectively to grappling fans, which then opens up an opportunity for flow grappling, which is a terrible service, but is better than ESPN because while ESPN has the World XL Championships, they don't have the Jiu-Jitsu Championships, which is like really sad for our sport, but it is what it is. So as far as growth strategy, you have two types of channels that you wanna pay attention to. Some are short-term and some are long-term. What short-term traction looks like is it's non-scalable and it's going to be stuff like begging and cajoling people in your personal network, going to users offline, going to conferences, messaging influencers one-on-one. -on -one. That's the kind of stuff you do to just get your initial cohort of users that will then allow you to like further validate and measure the success of your MVP. For long-term growth, you want to talk about various types of growth loops be it viral growth, be it user-generated content, paid marketing, sales, company-generated content. Um, and this is a whole deep separate topic, but some things to know about this, like how your product is constructed will enable or disable certain user acquisition channels long-term and vice versa. So you want to think about that and you want to be thoughtful about like who am I targeting what's their willingness to pay um, and based upon their willingness to pay and my guess at their customer lifetime value 
what types of growth channels make sense. So for example, if you have a free ad supported or freemium product that has a really fast activation time, the users are able to see the value quickly, you might have a great candidate for a viral growth loop because the, the cycle time is very short between like usage and recommendation. And there are fewer barriers in place to like prevent that engine of virality from like, you know, getting going. Whereas if you have like a product that costs, you know, $100,000 a year, like some massive enterprise, you know, product that needs like support and implementation, integration, then that's like unlikely to be a viral product, but the revenue from that will be able to fund a sales effort. So that's something to think about as well. Um, so as far as like how you choose your traction channels, brainstorm them for the long term and the short term, prioritize them, and you don't need strong confidence in your first draft of these because you're going to validate further. You just need to start a reasonable starting point. So the final thing to consider in this like deliberate deliberate startup methodology is like your business model and your business equation, you might say. So Keith Robois, who's like a general partner at Founders Fund and co-founder of Open Door, um, he has this great quote, every business when it works is like an equation, X times Y times Z with some weighting. Understanding that equation and being able to manipulate the variables is the key to being strategic. So what are the different like lever types? What are the different variables that you can manipulate here? We're talking about revenue streams, pricing, including willingness to pay and your payment model, customer lifetime value and cost structure in terms of like fixed and variable costs. So this is what I was talking about a little bit before. And if you want to, um, if you want to really dig into this in a really impactful way, look up Brian Balfour's essays on going beyond product market fit. Um, he has like four essays on this and that's what initially got me like tuned into the Reforge stuff. It was recommended to uh, our head of product at a previous startup I worked at who then shared it with me. Um, so an example of like what this means is let's say you, you have a freemium SaaS business like Spotify. You have, let's say free signups for your revenue streams, but then you have like a free to pay conversion ratio and monthly active users is like your key um, retention metric, let's say. Then you have like your average selling price on the pricing side. You have your churn rates that factor into your customer lifetime value. And then you got to think about like your customer acquisition cost. And the question is like, do all of these like roughly align and make sense together? And what you're really talking about here is alignment between your business model, your acquisition channel, your chosen market and user type and your product. So these are like the four fits that Brian Balfour likes to talk about. As you're going through and you're like hypothesizing around these various things from your initial insight to the problem you're trying to solve, target audience, et cetera, et cetera, all the way through to your business model, write in prose because it's gonna help you make connections and think and cause and effect. And don't just write in bullet points. And I say that as someone who's taken most of my notes on this topic 
in bullet points. But when I do our um, product market fit narrative for the podcast, I'm going to go back and write in prose. And um, yeah, I, uh, I appreciate you guys like sticking around for this. I hope this is helpful. If it is or if it's not, let me know at AY0N underscore B on Twitter. And look out for another three episodes on this in the next few weeks. We're also going to be releasing episodes on culture uh, by Ben Horowitz. Like I said, the Haitian Revolution, street gangs, and Silicon Valley startups, uh, and how they build great cultures. And then we're also going to talk about uh, Zeckhauser's maxims for thinking analytically. I also wanted to do an episode on moral philosophy for founders because another aspect of decision science is like, what is the right thing to do? And that's not an easy question, you know, like sometimes it is easier than other times, but it's, it's an important question. And I don't think it's always as simple as just like maximizing shareholder value, though I think that's a good starting point. Um, I can't say I'm really huge on the typical... Uh, ESG approach, which seems to me to involve just like, you know, whatever social fad is at play. I don't think that's necessarily the right way of making the right decisions is just to see like whatever people are ranting about and are excited about and then like allow the mob to kind of dictate decisions for you. Uh, Rather, I think it's important to dig into the topic of moral philosophy and try to try to understand what is right and wrong and what's a reasonable approach to deliberating upon that um, as you try to build something of value so we'll talk about moral philosophy for an episode i hope it's interesting to you guys and then also we have uh, gerard mimesis the nature of desire some stuff on that which is important because you know people desire your product why do they desire your product why do you even want to start a company where do your desires come from that's like an important topic um, so there's, there's interesting stuff coming up, uh, and I hope you guys will subscribe and share this podcast and stick around. And, um, if it's valuable, I'd love to hear about it. It's one of the most fulfilling things for me is when you guys reach out and, and, um, let me know whether, whether you like it or not, or what, what you'd like to see. Uh, can't promise I'll follow through on everything you'd like to see, but, um, I'll definitely do my best to give you guys what you need. So I hope you have a good week and thank you for listening.